You ever get one of those reminders of uh, how old you're getting? <laughs> we got one of those this week. When we started ministry at the Heights Church in 2001, uh, we stayed with a family there. And uh, we've done weddings for two of their four children. This, this week we got a, or a couple weeks ago, we got a call from a third of their children asking to do their wedding this May. Carolyn and I were talking, she was one when we lived there. We're like, okay, reality check. But we're looking forward to it. If you're like us, you love a good wedding, what, what, what a time to celebrate, right? Dance, feast, and, and be there for the couple. I want you to imagine if we were to go to that wedding and our family of five, they're, they're getting the feast out and we're sitting at our table and, and they come and we with very straight faces say, no, thank you. We're fasting. I mean, would we not stick out like a sore thumb? Why? That's a time to feast and, and enjoy and celebrate, right? I share that because when we look at the words of Jesus today, I want you to keep the theme of, uh, of a wedding celebration in mind. The, the wedding itself, the, the wedding wear, and even wine, which was common at weddings, as we know from John 2. Okay, but I want to tell us three things about the bridegroom today. And, and who is the bridegroom for the believer? Christ. All right. Let's keep that in mind. First thing I want us to take home is the, the bridegroom's coming is cause for celebrating. Cause for celebrating. The fact that he has come and is coming again is cause for celebration. Verse 14. Remember, we just read about Jesus and his guys hanging out with tax collectors and sinners at a great feast at Matthew's house. That's context. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now, as far as we know, there's only one fast required of the Jews in the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, once a year. But Pharisees had added to this, as they did with many things, Monday, Thursday, and four other fasts throughout the course of the year. And they and the disciples of John, John who? John the, yeah, John the Baptist. Incidentally, you know what he has in common with Winnie the Pooh? They have the same middle name. <laughs> Sorry, Larry, you've been in here twice, but you didn't get that the first time. The disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Think of it. Like these guys have been with them. They just saw a paralytic get up and walk. They saw Jesus speaking words of mercy to Matthew and his friends. Is this a time to fast? No, it's a time for, for celebrating. And John the Baptist, ironically, the leader of these disciples asking this, he got this concept of, of Jesus being the bridegroom. This idea of God being the bridegroom to the Jews, you can find it even in their prophets. Isaiah 54 Isaiah had been prophesying judgment for sin, but he also prophesied forgiveness and grace is coming. Listen to what he told them in Isaiah 54, starting at verse 4. 
what words of comfort this must have given them with judgment looming. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. John the Baptist realized that Jesus was this God, this this bridegroom coming for his people. You remember what he said in John 3.29? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, which he knew himself to be, who stands and hears the bridegroom, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He knew that. Maybe some of his disciples we're, we're, we're still struggling to learn that. But whenever we think about Jesus as the bridegroom and we think of his first coming, many have pointed out, and I think rightly so, that the first coming has a lot in common with Jewish engagement, Jewish betrothal. Because you know what, so, what was often involved in a Jewish engagement? were a couple of things. One, there was a, a marriage contract. Often the couple shared a cup of wine and sometimes a meal together. Now, does that remind you of anything? Later in Jesus' ministry, marriage contract, what did Jesus say at the Last Supper in that upper room? He spoke of a new covenant, right? They shared a cup of wine that represented his blood. And they shared a, a meal together. And what would happen after that betrothal was the Jewish groom-to-be would go back to his father's property. And he, he would e either add on to the existing home to make room for he and his bride or build something else on his property. Now think of what Jesus told his guys in that upper room as they were sad that he was going to be leaving. John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And that's what the groom would do in that culture. Once the house was ready, he'd come back, get his bride, and take her home. And there was a great celebration. We think of wedding receptions today, a five-hour reception's a long one, right? Sometimes they would go a week of feasting and dancing and celebrating. And as much as we enjoy them, we're a relatively wealthy country, right? Many of the people in Israel at this time under the thumb of Rome were poor. So a wedding feast like this was a highlight in their lives. The, the happiness and the joy that was experienced there. You see why I'm saying the fact that the bridegroom has come and is coming again is reason for the believer to celebrate. Amen? Amen? Of all people in the world, we have reason to celebrate. But he goes on. He says something of his disciples. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then 
they will fast. Now, I believe with many, the primary reference there is when he died on the cross and they locked themselves up. They likely did not eat until they saw him again. Who, they, who would want to? They, they, they were disillusioned and fearful. But there's a secondary reference, I believe, to that time after he rose again, ascended, and went back to heaven, the same period in which we live. You see the New Testament church in the book of Acts fasting on occasion. So we, we have this weird balance going on right now. We, we have this celebration, but we still live in this fallen world, yeah. right? I mean, think about it. Like in terms of Romans 8, Paul said, we're redeemed, but we still wait for the redemption of our bodies. In fact, he uses the word groan. Any of us groaning for that day when it's completed? What about this? We, we know as believers we're free from the penalty of sin and, and its enslaving power, but how many of us groan and long for that day when the very presence of sin is a thing of the past? I do. So, so we, we live in this period of celebration, yes, but I do believe it's fitting at times, just like the New Testament church in Acts, to, to fast. Not because I tell you to or someone tells you you have to, but when it's a genuine representation of mourning in our hearts or, or seeking the Lord for strength or, or guidance or when there's sin to confess. Listen to what the prophet Joel had said to a nation gone astray. Joel 2.12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. That's important with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. The all your heart is important because other prophets spoke against fasting for show. You fast, but you're treating your neighbors like garbage. That's not what I want. I, I want a fast that represents what's going on in your heart. Then he says in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Repentance of sin is a great time in the life of the believer to fast and seek him. A lot of conversation going on about what's happening out at Asbury. And I like what Jesus said, wisdom will be proved by her children. But one thing I saw there that caught my ear, that I thought was a good sign. After the message given that day, one young man stood up and began repenting of sin in his life. Yeah. That's always a good place to start in our own lives. So we live in this time of celebration, groaning. Think about the feast that's coming when the groom comes back. I was talking to Jay about this between services, and he's saying, you know, if we wanted the biblical picture at weddings, we should have the groom walking down the aisle. Because <laughs> Jesus is the one coming for his bride. And you know what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 4? After he talked about that day, he said, therefore, encourage one another with those words. Are you encouraged that Jesus is coming back for his bride? Think about that feast. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, right, has made herself ready. 
I like the way Warren Wearsby put it. He said, Jesus came to bring a feast, not a funeral. Are, are we those people known for celebrating that the bridegroom has come and is coming again? Second of our three big ideas I want us to take home. The bridegroom's righteousness is our clothing. That's special clothes for weddings. You remember later in Matthew, Matthew 22, there's a parable that talks about wedding garments. The bridegroom's righteousness is our clothing. Why do I say that? Jesus says to these guys asking why you're not fasting, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Luke adds this in his account of it, Luke 5.36, and no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Now, the issue here was shrinking, right? If it's unshrunk wool, sew it on. When it does shrink, it's going to tear and make things worse. But just think about it in today's terms. Let's say I have one of those 20% discounts at Kohl's that Carolyn gets sometimes. <laughs> and I'm like a lot of husbands. Do, do some of your husband's wives say, you've got like 1,000 shirts in here and you always wear the same five? Yeah. Okay, and plaid, like you've seen this one before, right? This is one of my favorites. So let's say this shirt tears. And I'm like, oh, I want to get that same shirt. But I'm going to go to Kohl's and uh, see if they have it. And I find it, and I bring it home, and I pull out my scissors and start cutting a square out of the new shirt. What's, what's Carolyn going to say? <laughs> what, <laughs> uh, why don't you just put on the new shirt, right? That makes a whole lot more sense than trying to patch up the old one. Why is Jesus saying this to these guys? He's saying this because he did not come to put a little paint on Moses, he did not come to add two or three rules that if you just add this rule, this rule, then you're there. He fulfilled the law. That's what he told us in Matthew chapter 5. He didn't come to put a patch on the old garment. He is the new garment. He is the righteousness of the believer in Jesus Christ. God's been showing us his provision for those who need clothing Throughout scripture, all, all pointing to this, right? Think about the garden. Adam and Eve sinned. They, they realized they were naked and ashamed, and, and they try to make these loincloths out of leaves. You can imagine how well that went. Um, a, a shoddy attempt at best. What's that represent? Represents us trying to cover ourselves up with our own fleshly acts of righteousness. What's God tell us that is in his eyes, in the prophets? It's like filthy rags. But what did God do? Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now think about that. Where do you get skins from? Animals. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be blood. And God was the one who provided legitimate clothing for them. Think about the prodigal son, the insult to his father of asking for his inheritance early, the, the sinful living to where he landed with the pigs, eating what they ate. And he comes home with this prepared speech that he practiced, Luke 15, 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. The best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. That's the good stuff. That's the prime rib. And let us eat and celebrate. But it's the best robe. Did he deserve that robe? Did he earn that robe? The Father in his grace and mercy provided that robe. So you say, what is the robe of the believer? Right here, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ is the clothing of the believer. So you say, well, where does obedience fit in? Because that's a theme we find throughout Scripture, right? Well, I like what a couple men have said here. Tim Keller said, religion will tell you, obey to be accepted. Obey to be accepted. Obey to be accepted. Christ says, obey because you are accepted. You understand the difference in motive? You, you feel the motivation to go out and obey because you are accepted in Jesus Christ? Paul Tripp put it this way. You're called to obey... But your obedience is not your hope. No, your hope is forgiving, enabling, and delivering grace. If you're like me, between now and heaven, you're in this battle, right? You know your position. You have these robes of righteousness, but your practice every day is a battle to line that up with your flesh. Well, I choose the flesh or the spirit today. I was talking with a friend struggling with the sin in his life, trying to break the chains. And I'll tell you part of what I told him. I said, listen, if we can on the one hand abide in Jesus as believers and know that he loves me right where I'm at, no matter what I'm going through, but at the same time maintain a holy restlessness to walk with him more faithfully in the spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit more tomorrow than I am today, I think we strike the right balance. You read the epistles in the New Testament, Paul always starts with who we are in Christ, and then he says, now live like that. It's never the other way around. Look at, look at any of his epistles, you'll find that theme. You know, we know it's a daily choice, right, to make our practice line up with our position, with the help of the Spirit. Paul talks about this in Romans 13, that daily battle, starting at verse 11. And this was a, a passage that God used to save Augustine out of sexual immorality and into salvation. Listen to Romans 13, 11. Paul says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Church doesn't need people that are woke. It does need people who are awake. Wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. It's like old outfit. That's not who I am anymore. Cast those off. Put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. 
If you want to go deeper on that theme, I don't have time to read it, but Colossians 3, 5 through 14 touches on the same idea. But I think about that, that struggle between position and practice, and, and I believe there's some in this room that need encouraged. We're all in that daily battle together. That's part of why we're here together, to encourage one another until that day comes. And I want to revisit the Chronicles of Narnia again. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Many of you have heard the story of Eustace Scrub. Miserable boy. Made everybody around him miserable, selfish, always whining about something. And at one point in the book, he runs away from the group and finds a cave of gold, which ignites his, his lust for wealth. And he goes in there and lays down on the gold. When he wakes up, he's horrified to discover that he's turned into a dragon. Externally, he's become what he was inside. And he tries desperately to pull those scales off himself because he doesn't want to be a dragon. He can't. He can only get a layer or so down, and there's more and more. Then Aslan, the lion representing Jesus, shows up, and painful though it was, he, he dug his claws in and peeled those layer after layer after layer of scales off. And there's Eustace, a little boy again, and Aslan says, there's a pool. Go wash. And that's a picture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But I love, for those of us who struggle with our practice here, what C.S. Lewis said about Eustace after that. He said, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. You realize that's where we are? Our position is settled. The cure has begun. Our practice is a work in progress. But always come back to the truth that it's his righteousness that is our clothing. And live from that reality, not for it. Are you resting in the righteousness of Christ alone today for your salvation? Are you trying to patch leaves yourself? I think there's one more application here with Jesus not coming to be a patch. He did not come to be one more thing in our lives. He came to be the thing. And I forget who shared this, but I've, I've always remembered it. If you think of your life as a bicycle tire with spokes on it, many spokes in your life, right? You could say marriage, kids, work, hobbies, etc. Jesus did not come to be another spoke on our tire. He came to be the hub, the hub of that tire. And every spoke of our lives need to be shaped first and foremost by the reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Have I tried to add him as one more spoke? Or is he the hub? Is he the hub? Last point, the bridegroom will not be confined by anything. Verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. 
Now, what's going on here? Why is he talking about this? Well, back in that day, I don't know if you want to hear this or not, but their wineskins were usually made out of a sheep or a goat. Okay, so they'd chop the head off, chop the limbs off, and they'd tan it in a special way to reduce any nasty flavor. I mean, you, you know the guys that sniff the corks and taste the wine. You, you don't want to be the guy saying, oh, take notes of oak, a little bit of sheep. You know, <laughs> they, they tanned them specially. They turned them hair side out. They sewed up all the orifices except for the neck usually. And they pour their wine in there. And at first they're very flexible. It's fresh skin. You pour new wine in there that's still expanding and fermenting. It's got room to give. But over time, those skins, like any skins, became brittle and hard. So if you filled up one of those old brittle wine skins with new wine and it's continuing to expand, it's going to blow it open and the wine and the skin is going to be ruined. What's Jesus talking about? Well, I, I told you the bridegroom will not be confined by anything, right? He, he's speaking of the kingdom that he's bringing and it's expansive property. It is going to grow and expand and it cannot be kept in the old wineskin of Judaism. But what's the human condition that they have and you and I still have today? We don't like change. We don't like change. Luke 5.39, that's why he says, No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Change is hard, right? And we got to give these guys some grace because we understand the same, same thing in our lives, right? For... For years, these Pharisees have been trying to protect their people because of what happened before. And some of them went so far with that that they, they missed the change of the Messiah when he came. Not all of them. Think about Nicodemus. Think about some of the priests who were saved in Acts. But who could admit we struggle with change too? We struggle with change. But I think about it like this. What's Jesus saying? And I know this illustration is limited I'm sure it has its flaws, but I'm hoping it's helpful. If, if you think of the, the, the Jewish faith as an acorn, okay, and then the trunk of a tree coming out of that representing Jesus, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1, 1, and then the branches of that tree, the, the expanding kingdom, the church of Jew and Gentile. Ephesians 2 says the dividing wall of hostility is gone. You think of what Acts 1.8 says. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now imagine trying to cram an oak tree back into an acorn. Can you do it? No. Now listen, we appreciate the acorn greatly because the acorn has forever shaped the life and destiny of the tree. But once grown, that tree can never be contained by the acorn again. Think of what Paul talked about in Colossians 2. You can read it later, 16 and 17. He talked about religious ceremonies, including some of the Jewish ceremonies. And he called them shadows, saying that Jesus is the substance. We're thankful for the shadows, but let's not miss the substance they pointed to. Imagine I'm at, at work and, and time to come home. 
I come in the front door and there's a light over here shining so that my shadow's on the wall over here. And, and Carolyn runs to the wall and starts giving it a welcome home kiss. Yeah. What am I going to be like? <laughs> hey, Carolyn, that's just my shadow. I'm over here. She's never done that. That's what I hear Jesus saying. The shadows were good and they're of God. But don't miss that I am the substance they all point to. He cannot be confined within Judaism. But listen, we need to realize, you and I, that we cannot confine an infinite God either. He lives in us as believers, but he is so much bigger than us. Because you think of that tree again, it doesn't end with the branches you know what the ultimate goal of salvation repeatedly in the epistles is? It is the glory of God. Ephesians 1, that's, that's why Paul says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Colossians 1.18 says that in everything Christ might be preeminent. Romans 11.36, after Paul... 9, 10, and 11 in Romans talks about God's wondrous plan of salvation to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, and then back to the Jews again. And Paul's mind is just blown by God's plan. He says, Romans eleven thirty six 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You think about the infinite glory of God. You think about what the prophet Habakkuk said in 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He's infinite in his glory. He's infinite in his wisdom. Same passage in Romans 11 after Paul looks at that plan. Verse 33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. He's infinite in his righteousness. Psalm 36, 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, the psalmist says. He's infinite in his faithfulness to his covenant. Psalm 36, 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Speaking of love, think what Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3.19. He prayed for them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Does that sound like anything you're going to finish with today? <laughs> to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Is that not an endless pursuit? I think about an old song by the Newsboys. One of their lyrics says, to have found you and still be looking for you is the soul's paradox of love. How many of you believers know what they're talking about? I found that relationship with Jesus, but oh, there's so much more to him. I want to continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness that I might daily be filled with who he is. He's infinite in his grace. What did Paul tell us in Romans 5.20? Where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. Don't forget, he lives in us believers, but he's so much bigger than us. It's ultimately about his glory. 
when I talk about him not being confined and, and, and pressing on in our relationship with him and growing in our understanding of him, I want to give a disclaimer here. I'm not talking about going and looking for new revelation. Someone comes to you and says, I got new revelation that differs from this. No. And let me show you why I say that from God's word. Jude 3. He says to those he's writing to, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Did that say the faith that is continuing to be revealed to the saints? No, it said the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. 1 Timothy 6, Paul looks at his young disciple and says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He says, guard the deposit given to you. Somebody calls you narrow-minded for guarding the truth of God's word. You take them to that passage. He says, God told me to guard it. And boy, it's under assault today. Another example of it, you probably know it from the book, book of Revelation. John's even stronger. Revelation twenty two eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So if I'm not talking about going out looking for new revelation, what am I talking about in, in growing in our understanding of this God who will not be confined? I'm talking about coming to him and saying, Holy Spirit, you are also the illuminator of what you have revealed. As I spend time in what you have revealed, illumine me to what you have here. Help me understand it more clearly. I'm talking about more wholehearted worship to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and so on. I'm talking about more complete surrender and obedience to what we already know to be true. I'm talking about deeper trust when he leads us. I'm talking about confession and repentance when it's appropriate because I've made it all about me. And quite honestly, I've forgotten about your glory. You think about the, the infinite God that sent his son to save us. And I go back to what David said in Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet he is. So much so that he went to the cross. Is there any way we're limiting Jesus in our lives? Have we stopped growing? Have we closed our willingness to learn what's revealed? Or do we have the attitude of Paul? I mean, if there's ever somebody who loved the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the Apostle Paul, right? But even he, you know what he said in Philippians 1.12, I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Listen, if Christ had, if Paul, excuse me, had pressing on to do, I dare say you and I do as well. Amen? Amen. As I close, 
And this may be the last time in a while because I'm in book seven of the Narnia series. <laughs> the last battle. They, they finally get to the new Narnia, which of course represents the new heavens and the new earth. And I want you to read how he describes it. He says, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was this. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Breehee. And listen to this. He says, come further up, further in. And you hear those four words, further up, further in. It's, it's as though they're going to spend all eternity pressing on and learning more about this new heavens and new earth, but also Aslan himself who represents Jesus Christ. Further up, further in. What I want to say as we close this message about the bridegroom is we don't have to wait till we get there to say further up, further in. We could adopt that mindset right now as his followers, <laughs> as we think about the bridegroom. Well, I go further up, further in, and in my understanding that we have every reason to celebrate because the bridegroom has come, and he is coming again. We go further up and further in, and in understanding and resting that his righteousness is the righteousness of all who put their faith in him. Press into that assurance of that and the obedience that flows out of that and gratitude. We go further up and further in and acknowledging that we have learned much about our bridegroom and his father and the Holy Spirit. But we have much to learn, much more to walk in as he leads us day by day by day. Lord, I thank you for this short little passage in Matthew. I thank you for the celebration that is due because the bridegroom has and is coming. I pray for anyone who has not found him as their bridegroom, that you would draw them, Lord, to the cross where the bridegroom spilled his own blood for our sin. May they embrace him as the Savior and Lord of their lives. And for those of us who, who have accepted him as our bridegroom, may you restore unto us the joy of our salvation. And I think about that very line and how it was in a psalm of confession that David had. If there's any mourning or confession that we need to bring before you with or without fasting today, lead us there. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation, Lord. Forgive us for the times we try to add Jesus as just one more hobby in our lives, one more spoke. We repent, Lord. Bring him back to the center of our lives. May, may that relationship with him, may we treat it as the, though he is the bread of life because he is. He is the living water. 
and stop searching for meaning in broken cisterns. Lord, help us rest in his robes of righteousness. And Father, forgive us for times we, we have limited you. We've said, no, I won't follow you there. We've chosen to stop learning, to stop growing. Lord, open the wonder, the childlike faith in our hearts again that we follow an infinite God who says, follow me. That we might say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Thank you for the bridegroom. I pray that any offerings we give this morning will be out of great gratitude that he has and is coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.